When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. As you know, it's been a wild week, so we had to really scrutinize to pick three topics to discuss today that we think you'll find fascinating. First, we're talking about a challenge I never thought any politician would ever raise to the independence of the Department of Justice. Without that independence, we cannot sustain democracy or the rule of law. Then we'll move to talking about Justice Alito's luxury fishing trip and the continuing absence of a SCOTUS ethics code. And then we'll close with Durham's testimony on the same day that Schiff is censured for saying the exact same thing during the impeachment investigation. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to those great topics, I loved our conversation about words So I want to continue that conversation. And this week, I want to talk about words you would have used or could have used or wish you had used in commenting on the news of this week. My word is risible. And I'll bet everyone listening knows that that was the word I wanted to use to describe Justice Alito's op-ed and his excuses for why he didn't (laughs) file his reports and report his luxury travel. What about you, Joyce? What does risible mean? I don't know what risible means. What is risible? Oh, you're kidding. Risible is laughable. Laughable? Yes, it is laughable. How do you spell it? Causing (laughs) R-I-S, R-I-S-I-B-L-E, risible. Good word for everybody to know. Mm-hmm. And what about you? Okay, so we'll start with you, Barb, since you asked, what's your favorite word for the week? Well, I don't know if it's a favorite word, but a word that uh, describes this um, impeachment of Adam Schiff and the, the the spectacle we saw on the House floor this week but came to my mind is buffoonery. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was just so embarrassing for our country, I thought, to try to censure a member of the House for leading the impeachment of Donald Trump for his high crimes and misdemeanors. So buffoonery is my word. Risible would work there too. What about you, Joyce? You know, so my experience this week was actually more than just one word. It was sort of a mood or a vibe because I've been feeling so, you know, both overwhelmed by the press of the news, but also there's this up and down mood about will we finally hold Trump accountable or is this all going to fall apart because of his incredible luck as a litigant and, you know, the delay game, everything like that. And then I was coming in from an early morning workout and one of my neighbors who I love, who listens to the podcast stopped me and she said, you know, I like the podcast so much more this year than last year. 
and I was momentarily taken aback. And she said, no, no, it's not anything bad. She said, it's that I finally feel like there really is going to be accountability. This year, I look at what's happening and the way y'all explain it, and it really makes me feel hopeful. So the word that I'm going to say, Jill, is hopeful. And I think that she's absolutely right. Thank you, Mary, for the mood lifter. I do feel hopeful, and I plan on expressing that more on, on TV. Good word. I like that. What about you, Kim? Yeah, so the word that I thought of, and it's um, we were talking about words that we didn't use, and I think this is a word that I'm going to stop using, and that is unprecedented. I, I feel like <laughs> so many unprecedented yep. things are happening, and I think that's the point. We have precedents to talk about things that happen in a regular course that we know as a matter of law how to handle them. But I think the point is these are things that have never happened before. That's why it's so important. That's why they're so impactful. Um, I think a lot of the things we're talking about are things we haven't happened before. So I'm going to stop using unprecedented because I think that's the point. The point is that we need to figure out what these things mean in real time and not just be in awe at the fact that, oh, wow, that's never happened before. What we what do we do? I think we need to move beyond that. Good, good, good. I agree. Unless we talk about the nature of the crimes are being unprecedented. But you're right. We shouldn't be using that. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So you all know I've covered politics for a long time. And the brand that GOP candidates often boasted is that there's a party of law and order. Well, lately it doesn't seem to be the case, especially given the recent attacks on the Department of Justice and vows by candidates, even for president on the Republican ticket, to essentially sideline and sidestep federal law enforcement if they are elected. So, Barb, I want to start with you. It used to be a maxim that presidents steer completely clear of federal law enforcement investigations and prosecutions. What are GOP candidates now saying about this? And as a former federal prosecutor, what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, well, as you, as you point out, um, it, it, traditionally, at least in my adult lifetime, uh, the, the norm has been 
that the Justice Department is independent of partisan politics. In fact, there is a policy in the Justice Manual that says prosecutors may never consider politics whatsoever in making a charging decision. And yet what we saw this week is Donald Trump promising that he, if he becomes president again, he will appoint a special prosecutor to go after President Joe Biden and his family. I mean, prosecutors make decisions about when and whether to open investigations based on factual predication when they believe a crime has been committed. To just go after your political opponent is completely at odds with that. But he wasn't alone. Um, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who has also announced a campaign for the presidency, said something that um, is also really scary and dangerous. He said that he does not believe that the Justice Department is independent from the White House as a matter of law. Now, he might be technically right about that, but we have made it a, a, a norm in this country that we allow the Justice Department to act independently of the president to avoid actual political interference or even the appearance of political interference that would undermine public confidence. Um, and he's not the only one. We also saw um, one other candidate, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is uh, a businessman, perhaps a, a more long, long shot, uh, but who pledged to uh, pardon Donald Trump if he becomes president. Uh, he also said that he thinks uh, a president has the power to direct prosecutors to open or close specific investigations. And then even Nikki Haley, who I think has got to be a, a strong contender there, um, said that she thinks Donald Trump you know, should, should be prosecuted. And if he's convicted, she will still nonetheless pardon him, even though the, the case is serious, sort of for the good of the country and moving us all forward. So all of those things are, are so counter to the idea that we all uh, are subject to the rule of law and that prosecutors decide cases based on fact and law apart from politics. So I think it's a really dangerous turn of events to see um, political leaders suggesting otherwise. And Jill, the principle that the DOJ should be completely independent from the White House and the president, that principle stems from Watergate. Talk about why that's so important. It is so important because if you have a corrupt president or even a not corrupt president, but he is choosing the targets of investigation, not based on facts, not based on a predicate that would be sustainable in any court, you have a problem with having a system of justice, a rule of law, or even a democracy. And during Watergate, there are many examples of how the government was using the systems of justice, the FBI, the CIA, and the Department of Justice. There were even there was something that very little known, you know, Watergate is thought of as the break-in and the obstruction of justice case, but really it involved a number of cases, including campaign contribution cases and dirty tricks and ITT, which was then International Telephone and Telegraph, which was one of the biggest corporations in the country at the time. Um, and they had a lobbyist, Dita Beard, and there was a huge investigation of whether she was paying bribes in the form of support for the Republican National Committee um, convention or 
specific donations. She wrote a memo that said the $400,000 contribution went a long way toward helping them get dismissed antitrust cases that were otherwise pending against ITT. And our office did bring uh, two criminal cases, one against the former attorney general, Richard Kleindienst, who pled guilty or pleaded, depending on whether you're following the current media way of saying it, but I say pled, pled guilty um, to charges of failing to give accurate testimony in his confirmation hearing regarding White House influence on the antitrust suit. His fine, by the way, was $100 and a suspended 30-day sentence. Um, But anyway, it was a a guilty plea. And there was a second case against the lieutenant governor of California who was convicted after trial on one count of perjury in connection with his testimony in the same hearings. Um, And he received a suspended sentence for that. So it's very important that a particular target not be identified. It has always been deemed appropriate for the president to set priorities by saying, let's put more emphasis on antitrust cases. Let's put less emphasis on some other topic, but not to identify particular targets. That's what happens in third world countries. That's what it looks like happened to me um, in the case of Putin and Navalny. There's new charges now being brought against Navalny. And that's clear to me, a political move to keep him sidelined during Putin's administration. I don't want our country to look like that. So, Joyce, Barb talked a little bit about the pardon power. Um, I wrote about uh, Donald Trump wanting other GOP political candidates to promise to pardon him and how that's become sort of a litmus test and how dangerous that is. I'll put my piece in the show notes. But there's a difference between the importance of the concept of clemency and making an end run around Uh, the rule of law. Do you think this pardon talk crosses that line? And if so, how? Yeah, I think it's really dangerous. And I loved what you wrote here, Kim. You know, you said that it's no surprise that Trump is attempting to bully other potential uh, Republican presidential candidates into this vow to pardon him. But you wrote that what is shocking and truly perilous for our democracy is the willingness of Republican presidential candidates to take that bait. And I think you're you're dead on the money. At this point, the promise to pardon Trump is all about wooing voters. It's all about wooing the base. It is rank politics. It has nothing to do with the purpose behind giving the president the power of the pardon and, and the power to offer clemency. So I think it's always instructive to sort of do the shoe on the the other foot sort of thing. And here I find that to be helpful. If Barack Obama had done what Donald Trump did, would anyone be talking about pardoning him? And the answer is, of course not. You know, Nikki Haley saying that she would pardon Trump, she said that it's about what's good for the country. And I have to confess that made me throw up a little bit in my mouth, right? I mean, it's just so strange to hear someone suggesting that giving a former president a pass for, if not fomenting insurrection, then certainly encouraging it and refusing to end it. It's tough to believe that that's something that merits the pardon power. This is a an individual who lied about fraud in the election, who tried to stay in power after he lost. He lied, cheated, and, and stole his way into office. And Nikki Haley thinks that's somebody who should 
should get a pardon. No thanks. That is not how the rule of law works. Anybody? Can I add something to that? Yeah, I would really love to because for me, first of all, Nikki Haley saying it's for the good of the country is so phony and so false. We know from past examples that pardoning Richard Nixon did not serve the good of the country. In fact, in my view, pardoning him led to Donald Trump and to the situation we're in now. And secondly, clemency requires that there be an acceptance of responsibility, an admission of guilt. There needs to have been some either conviction or service of a sentence before you can grant clemency to someone. And here, they're saying in advance and in complete absence of any acceptance or admission of guilt, they're going to pardon someone for things that they know that person did, that they know are violations of law. That, to me, is not serving the public good, it's not serving the country, and it is the exact opposite. I really feel so strongly, I'm not sure it passes the line or crosses the line because it tells us exactly who these people are. And so in that regard, it's a good thing that they're saying it out loud and that we can evaluate them as potential presidents based on this horrible thing they're saying. So some Republican candidates, as well as some members of Congress, have pointed to Hunter Biden in suggesting that there is some double standard, some unfairness in the way that federal prosecutions uh, are carried out. I, I would just say, based on my experience, especially with charges involving failure to pay IRS debts, um, those rarely result in jail time, unless somebody is willingly refusing to pay this debt. And certainly in cases where people have voluntarily repaid this debt, as uh, Hunter Biden did, jail time is almost unheard of. But I just want to hear from you guys. Do you think that there is a double standard here in the fact that uh, Hunter Biden had a plea deal that results in no jail time as opposed to other things that are going on? Anybody? I'd love to jump in on this one. I think there are a couple of things at work here that make these comments um, really problematic. Con um, number one, we don't know all of the underlying facts. All we know is that Hunter Biden failed to pay more than $100,000 in two tax years. And so it, it, there may be more, there may be less. It may be problematic. And so to suggest that this is outrageous is really based on nothing other than these rumors that uh, you know, unsubstantiated tips that he was taking bribes from China. Um, this was all looked into. Um, another point is that Merrick Garland gave entire discretion in this case, complete authority to decide this case to David Weiss, who was the U.S. attorney, attorney appointed by Donald Trump, left in office even after uh, the Trump administration ended and Joe Biden appointed his own U.S. attorneys. He left the U.S. attorney in Delaware in place solely to handle this case, um, as well as all the others. But he's, he has stayed there and he's been given the authority to handle this case and decide whether charges should be filed, what charges should be filed and where they should be filed. And so to suggest that that prosecutor is somehow in the bag for the Biden family really just doesn't make a lot of sense. And then just to put it in context, Kim, with what you said about how charges like this rarely result in criminal charges, um, in my former office, when we brought a tax case, it was usually uh, in connection with some other crime. There was a fraud 
there was some very significant crime we couldn't prove, like the Al Capone uh, case where he was uh, convicted of tax evasion because they were unable to prove all of the cases of bootlegging and kidnapped and murder for hire and other kinds of things. They could get him on the tax charges, and so they did. That is sometimes referred to as the Al Capone theory of prosecution. But if the only thing he did was fail to pay taxes for two years, that would almost always be resolved through civil litigation. Um, And that's because prosecutors have limited resources to handle cases. So we prioritized the most important cases. In a given year, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit could handle about a thousand cases. Delaware, my guess is it, it's probably even less. They're a smaller office. Um, that means you have to prioritize. And so you, we went after trigger pullers and high, uh, you know high volume fraudsters and you know massive drug traffickers involved with cartels and violence, um, corrupt public officials. The idea that you're going to expend your scarce resources on somebody who didn't pay their taxes when you've got perfectly good civil uh, mechanisms to do that strikes me as n- not the way business is normally done. And then on the gun thing, you know, he was also allowed a, to sign into a deferred prosecution agreement for possessing a gun uh, while addicted to drugs. The only reason the Justice Department knows about it is Hunter Biden himself disclosed this fact in his own book. Mm. Um, and again, this is not a charge that would ordinarily be brought by prosecutors. In my 20 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office, again, because we prioritize trigger pullers, those who are involved in violent crime, using guns to hurt people, we declined to prosecute these kinds of cases. Agents didn't even bring them to us. I recall using it exactly one time against an offender who was plotting to shoot up a church. But because we didn't believe we had uh, sufficient um, evidence to charge attempt because he didn't get close enough or uh, to charge conspiracy because he wasn't working with anyone else, we did find, we served, you know, FBI surveilled him for a number of days and found that he was using marijuana while possessing this gun. So we charged him with that because like Al Capone, that's the one thing we could use to disrupt him and take him down, um, get him help so that we could protect public safety. But for someone like Hunter Biden, who is not otherwise engaged in violence, uh, it strikes me that he has been dealt with more harshly than most other defendants. I was just going to say, I agree completely with Barb that he has been dealt with more harshly rather than more favorably, and that it was by the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who started the investigation during the Trump administration and has continued it. And the best that he has been able to come up with are charges that relate to taxes that Hunter Biden has voluntarily already paid. He has paid what he owed. Normally, that would not result in a criminal case. And he only had possession of the gun apparently for about two weeks Uh, because it was thrown away by his then-girlfriend after he had it for two weeks, and he never used it. So again, it's just being dealt with unfairly, in my view, unfairly harshly. So can I just zoom out here and make the larger point that part of what goes on here is standard DOJ process. In these very political cases, you often will leave um, a U.S. attorney from the prior administration in place. It happened with John Edwards, too. In that sense, I guess this is usual. But the point that I wanted to make is that trying to appease Trump and his followers never works. You can never do anything in a way that's fair enough. You can (laughs) never protect people enough. No matter what you do, you will be criticized, you being Joe Biden or Merrick Garland or whoever. And ultimately, I think you just have to do the right thing. 
there's way too much bending over backwards to try to accommodate Trump or to encourage his followers to believe that things are fair. And I'm just here to say, ladies and gentlemen, it ain't going to happen. Just do the right thing and be done with it. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of the old phrase Janet Reno used to use, which is, I'm going to be damned if I do and damned if I don't, so I might as well just do the right thing. Mm -hmm. It's, It's very much that. There was new reporting from ProPublica this week. On the heels of the avalanche of reporting they triggered about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's ethical lapses, we learned that Justice Samuel Alito vacationed at the expense of two wealthy Republican businessmen shortly after he was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Leonard Leo, the head of the Federalist Society, was also involved in planning these vacations. Um, It's just really unbelievable. This is the sort of thing that you cannot make up. But Barb, talk to us a little bit about the reporting and why the facts and the timeline are raising red flags that Alito may have not only failed to report these items on disclosure forms, but might have actually violated the law here. Yeah, in 2008, after he was already on the Supreme Court, Justice Alito took this fishing trip, a uh, luxury trip to a lodge in Alaska, a place that rents for more than $1,000 a day, took a free ride on Paul Singer's uh, private jet. Paul Singer is a hedge fund billionaire who has been before the court many times. Uh flew there, spent a few days. There are photos of Alito and others holding up their great trophy fish that they caught, the giant salmon. Um, Had a great time. Uh, Reports say that uh, wine was served that cost uh, $1,000 a bottle. Um, Ten times since that trip, Paul Singer, the billionaire's hedge fund, has come before the court. And in 2014, there was a big case involving a dispute between Paul Singer's hedge fund and the nation of Argentina. Justice Alito did not recuse himself from the case. He voted with a majority in favor of Paul Singer by a vote of seven to one. Uh, And as a result, the hedge fund run by Paul Singer made $2.4 billion. So that's sort of the timeline and the facts. But what's interesting about it in this reporting Um, is that not only did Justice Alito take all this free stuff, but he also failed to report it on his financial disclosures. So we know that after Watergate, the Ethics in Government Act requires certain uh, federal officials, including Supreme Court justices, to report most gifts to the public, anything over $415. I don't know why they landed on that, but it's anything (laughs) of value. Now, it has some exceptions, which is where things get interesting. There is something known as the personal hospitality exemption. So Joyce, if you should invite me over uh, to spend a night in your chicken coop and I'm a federal employee, um, I don't have to report that because that's personal hospitality, which is defined as food, lodging, or entertainment received as personal hospitality, which also is defined as gifts from an individual at that person's home or at properties that they or their family own. And so when you look at what Alito did here in failing to disclose this fishing trip, this was not uh, at a place owned by a friend or family. 
Um, he wrote on the plane, uh, that's not the home of a friend or family, though he has an interesting explanation of that, of uh, a very <laughs> tortured description, I think we'll get to later, of how he thought that was okay. Um, and, and then he, he, he doesn't report this, nor does he recuse himself. And I think the real um, conflict in his judgment is you can't have it both ways. Either this is a very good friend uh, who is offering personal hospitality because you're good friends and you're staying at their home, uh, uh, in which case, okay, this is a good friend and he's exempt from disclosure. Um, but if he's such a good friend and he's exempt from um, from disclosure, then what do you do in deciding a case worth $2.4 billion? He should have recused himself. So having it both ways is really problematic here. And uh, I, I think his explanations just do not uh, hold water. Yeah, you know, there's um, so much here that's wrong. I mean, if the trip is not a problem, if it's okay to take the trip, then why wouldn't you disclose it on your financial disclosure forms? You know what it is, Joyce? What is it, Barb? It's fishy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you hooked me and reeled me in oh, on that one. Uh, how many fishing <laughs> jokes can we make? They are, they are endless. You know, the problem is there's really nothing funny here, but in some ways you feel like all that you can do is laugh about it. It's risible. It really, I learned it's that from risible. Jill. <laughs> it is indeed risible. Kim, when ProPublica reached out to uh, Justice Alito for comment, he declined to give them one, had the uh, Supreme Court's head spokesperson say that he would not comment. But amazingly, he turned around just a couple of hours later, filed his own piece over his byline in the Wall Street Journal before ProPublica's publication deadline. So interested in your take on what he had to say. Was it smart? Did he give himself a good defense? And how do you feel about his efforts, since you're a journalist, his efforts to preempt their reporting? Yeah, I have so many thoughts about this choice, so I will are try they visible, to keep Kim? them. They are. Well, <laughs> they're strong. I'll put it that way. Um, so here's the thing. Normally, as a journalist, you will do what the reporter at ProPublica did, which is go and seek a response from Justice Alito through the normal um, format, which is to go to the public information office at the Supreme Court and say, these are the questions that I have. Please submit them to the justice and ask for uh, some sort of response, which this reporter did. The official line, the, the people in the public information office were probably told by Alito, no, we don't have any response to this. And so they were preparing their stories. Alito didn't just reach out, and I want to be super clear here because there is a difference between the reporters at a news organization and the editorial and op-ed staff of a news organization. I personally belong now at the Boston Globe. I'm a part of the editorial board. We are the editorial op-ed section of it, which is completely different from the news section. The Wall Street Journal has wonderful reporters who do a, a wonderful job of reporting news. The Wall Street Journal, Journal's editorial department, which includes its op-ed staff, is completely separate from that. And they have shown a real bent to be protective of conservative causes. And that is where Justice Alito went. He sent them an op-ed and they published it. Obviously, this had to have happened very quickly with very little time. And it was a pre-response. It wasn't even a response mm -hmm. to the 
story because it came out before the ProPublica article was even published. I cannot imagine, I don't want to speak on behalf of the um, op-ed editors at the Boston Globe who are my bosses, but I cannot imagine that they would ever publish something in response to a story that hasn't even published yet. That is crazy. I cannot explain how crazy that is. And honestly, my first response to Alito's pre-buttle, pre-spawns, was, wow, a hit dog hollers because he was really whining uh, and victimizing himself in it. But once the ProPublica story posted, I was angry because the headline and the subhead of the Wall Street Journal piece, which I admit, Alito probably did not write. That is usually the staff of the news organization that writes the headlines and the subheads of stories. They claimed that ProPublica falsely accused Alito of something. And in reading the report and in reading Alito's response, clearly Alito isn't happy with the reporting, but he did not publish or point out a single factual inaccuracy. At the most, he called it a mischaracterization. And maybe he quibbled about how much the bottle of wine he drank was worth. He didn't. <laughs> he said it was less than $1,000, whereas now, the reporting Kim, was that Kim, is worth 1000 I just have to caution you here because you <laughs> know if you're going to accept a $100,000 plane ride from someone— it's okay if the seat would have been empty otherwise. Oh, my God. Yeah, you otherwise would have gone unoccupied, Kim. I mean, I don't know. What, what is he supposed to do? Just let it go empty? Come on. He saved the taxpayers' money, yeah. according to him. I mean, but he claimed, if I if I wrote something and a Supreme Court justice wrote an op-ed claiming that I falsely accused him of something, I have to believe that the good lawyers at the Boston Globe would, would be motivated and, and activated uh, to respond to that. That was crazy. That was absolutely crazy. It's not okay. And he cannot be happy about something, but don't claim that someone falsely acclaimed, uh, accused you of anything. And I just want to make one more point. I know I've been rambling because I'm hot about this. <laughs> I am hot about this. This is a difference because I'm thinking about poor Katanji Brown Jackson, who reported the flowers that Oprah sent her <laughs> after she was confirmed to the Supreme Court because they were in excess of $1,000. Nobody is saying, and there is no rule that says Justice Alito, well, I won't say, I'll, I'll take that back. I'm not saying nobody is saying this, but there is no ethical rule that says Justice Alito could not have taken that trip. This is an important point. The rules say he had to disclose that he took this trip and the value of that trip. The same way that Katanji Brown Jackson, when she was sent probably the most elaborate flower arrangement from Oprah Winfrey, disclosed on her forms that she got this elaborate flower arrangement from Oprah Winfrey. All he had to do was disclose it. That's what the rule called for, and that's what all of this is about, and that's what he is angry about. I personally think the rules should be changed, that he should not be able to take a trip like that, but that isn't even the rule. This is what is angering him so. So this is why all of this is so ridiculous. 
You know, it's all about a topic that we've discussed far more frequently than I thought we would have to, right? The public's confidence in the Supreme Court. The reason judges make these sorts of disclosures is so the public can know who their friends are. And it's also so lawyers know when there's a legitimate conflict of interest and they should ask the judge to step aside. And so I think when you put all that together the way you do, Kim, it makes it so clear that on so many fronts, this is a court that's more worried about its personal comfort and its summer vacations than it is about the public's confidence in in its integrity as a court. And there will never be a moment where I don't find that to be just such a shocking thing. And Jill, it reminds me of our discussion when the reporting about Justice Thomas came out. We talked about, you know, it's tough for another branch of government to impose ethics rules on the Supreme Court. The the courts and Congress, they're co-equal branches. Um, Congress, nonetheless, is trying to do that. They're considering it. The Senate, um, in the absence of any plan, any plan at all to fix these problems by the Supreme Court and by the Chief Justice, uh, who even refused to acknowledge that problems existed the last time he deigned to appear over on the Hill, there's an effort in the Senate to move ahead. But it does seem like there are constitutional issues, and I'm curious, based on all of your experience in this area, do you think that the senators are, are trying to play a long game here? Is there anything that can be done about Thomas and Alito? So before I answer that really good question, I just want to say I have, since the day I read about the disclosure about the Oprah flowers, been trying to imagine <laughs> what something looks like that yeah. costs more than $1,000. I just can't even, I mean, $100 I could imagine, maybe three or 400 but $1,000 or more? I just, anyway, uh, I would love to have seen a picture of that. That should have been attached to the disclosure form. In terms of what Congress can and should do, first of all, I agree with what you said, should, they should be doing something. But actually, the Supreme Court should have done something a long time ago. And Chief Justice Roberts is doing a huge disservice to the court and to its legacy and its reputation by not doing something, because there is a legitimate reason for concern. And while you're right that he could take this trip. I'm not sure he should have. But if he did, he should have recused himself after that for any case involving the donors of that very lavish trip. And he didn't. Now, Congress, you have two issues. One is separation of powers under the Constitution, but you also have checks and balance, which are built into the Constitution. And I'm going to say I personally would be stressing checks and balances, saying that Congress does have some power. And we know that Congress has some power. It can, for example, limit the Supreme Court's jurisdiction except in cases that the Constitution says must be decided by the Supreme Court, like when it's a dispute between two states. So Congress does have some power. And if the court continues to refuse to take any action, then I think checks and balances demand that there be something done. And there is a recusal statute that's been around for more than 75 years. Uh, Ethics and government uh, accountability requires that disclosure be made. There was no disclosure. Maybe it should be strengthened to say no gifts 
can be accepted at all. Um, and we have to do something. Justice Kennedy, a long time ago, um, said that Congress had the power to regulate the court. And maybe we should be taking him more seriously, giving total independence to the court on decisions it makes in cases or controversies that it hears. But other than that decisional, I think the Congress can and should be taking action to save the uh, reputation of the court. And if they don't do something immediately this summer, then I think in the next session of Congress, they should be going full force ahead to create some ethics standards about recusal and what can and can't be accepted. com slash sisters with the code sisters. Use code sisters at honeylove.com slash sisters. Everyone can find the link in our show notes. Well, this week, John Durham testified before Congress about his investigation into the investigation of the Trump campaign's connections with Russia. He was, of course, the special counsel appointed by William Barr, and left in place by Merrick Garland. Joyce, uh, we saw this testimony a couple weeks after John Durham's final report was issued. Did we learn anything new from Durham's testimony? No, Barb, we didn't. (laughs) I mean, not even anything visible. (laughs) We learned, I think that Durham seemed remarkably out of touch with commonly understood facts that, you know, anybody who's been paying even a bare modicum um, of attention to everything involving Trump and Trump's initial 2016 campaign and Russia's effort to influence the outcome of, of that election is already familiar with. You know, you know this from our time there. Durham used to have a really good reputation at DOJ, but he, like so many other people, seems to have just squandered it in service to Trump. And I, I really don't know what the explanation is for that. Um, He did not have anything new to offer in his testimony. He didn't explain why he spent five years worth of resources on two failed trial prosecutions. You know, he didn't explain why he didn't stop and reconsider what he was doing when his one of his closest friends resigned because she had serious concerns about the process he was undertaking. And I think one of the ongoing mysteries of the Trump era is why so many people, um, good people, gave up everything that they had in service to Trump. We just don't know why that happened. Yeah, I mean, frankly, the most scathing thing he found in his whole report, and as he repeated in his testimony, is that he believed that when the investigation was started, not that it should not have been opened, that it should have been opened, but that it should have been opened as a preliminary exam as opposed to a full exam. And that is such a quibble. It it really relates only to the duration and you know that's not the complaint that Trump people have about the duration. And the other the other thing it, it does is it allows the use of different um, investigative techniques. But in terms of that decision, even the inspector general said that he believed it was appropriate to open it as a full investigation. I'm sorry, Joyce, did you want to chime in on no, that? No, I was just going to say I agree with you so strongly. It's a hyper-technical distinction that has only a little bit of weight even inside of, you know, FBI, inside of DOJ's practices, because you can always convert an investigation as more evidence develops. And it's just, I I think it's astonishing that this is the outcome here. 
It's a difference without distinction. So, Jill, did you see the exchange between um, Adam Schiff, congressman, and uh, John Durham? Um, you know, Schiff did this as a former prosecutor, as you all know. He did that classic prosecutor cross-examination that can be so devastating. Uh, you know, Schiff just simply read statements from the Mueller report verbatim. And then he would ask Durham, if he disagreed with them, like now, now Robert Mueller found that Russia interfered in the the, the uh, 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systemic fashion. Do you disagree with that? <laughs> um, did you see that? And, and what was what was your reaction to both Schiff's technique and Durham's responses? One, I did see it. Two, I think that we should post it on our show notes so that everyone listening to this can see it or read the transcript of it. It was brilliant examination by a really skilled prosecutor. He did a great job, and it was so funny to watch. Actually, one of my friends who is really obsessed with all that's going on actually felt sorry for Durham. I thought he deserved every bit he got, but she really felt sorry for him because he apparently didn't quite catch on at first. And so he was, yeah, no, I agree with that. Yes, that's what it says. And then he realized how badly things were going and where this was leading. And he's like, well, I I can't really say. I don't really uh, know. And he sounded like an ill-informed, illiterate person. And it was really pathetic. Adam Schiff made the points very clear about what the Mueller report showed and about the failure of Durham to uncover anything that would have undermined that. And it really showed the complete failure of the millions of dollars that were spent on the Durham investigation. Um, It's something really worth watching. And as I think we've already mentioned, it's ironic that all of these things that Durham is admitting under oath, in front of the American public, were the things that then the Congress voted to censure Schiff for having said years ago, and that are proven to be true over and over and over again. Yeah, and I want to get to that in just a second, but, you know, just the final point on the Schiff cross-examination of Durham I think, as you said, you know, his first instinct was to say, yes, I agree. Yes, I agree, <laughs> which was right and truthful. And then at some point he realized, oh, this is not going well for right. me. But then I thought he looked so much worse because then he starts to uh, downplay um, and minimize conduct. And, and I think revealed himself to be totally in the bag for Trump and a total Trump apologist. You know, at one point Schiff asked him, um, you know, isn't it true that Donald Trump found, or uh, that, that Robert Mueller found Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort met with Russian operatives at Trump Tower in the summer of 2016 for the purpose of receiving dirt on Hillary Clinton? It says that, doesn't it? And rather than say, yeah, it says that, he starts saying, well, it's, it's not a big deal. Lots of people make phone calls. You, you, you know, you get a lot of, why are you defending their conduct? I, I really thought that was very, very telling and um, really just kind of evaporated any credibility he might have had. Um, and Kim, let me ask you about the point that, that Jill raised there about on the very same day that we see this exchange between Congressman Schiff and John Durham, the House votes to censure Adam Schiff 
for his role in the Trump impeachment, you know, back during the Trump administration. What what was that all about? And how do you read that situation? Hmm. Well, I think, and I'm not a part of the uh, House Republican Caucus, you know, brain trust. No? Uh, but it certainly <laughs> seems to be part and parcel with attempts uh, to try to bring impeachment charges against Joe Biden because, you know, tit for tat, right? But what it actually served to do, I think, and if I were Adam Schiff, I'd be thrilled because he's now uh, in the middle of a Senate campaign. It's like an in-kind contribution. If the House is coming after you in this way uh, for your role in the impeachment and your role in very... um, uh, deftly, as you pointed out, questioning Durham in that um, in that hearing, I, I think all the attention that Adam Schiff gets to it is probably going to help him politically yes. in his next endeavor. Yeah, yeah. Did he even say that? He said something like, "I, I take it as a badge of honor" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you know, I, Joyce, let me ask you. I, I really feel like this is an effort to rewrite history. You know, I've been studying disinformation for my book and. This idea that we're going to censure the person who led the impeachment proceedings. And then did you see Elise Stefanik, the congresswoman from New York, wants to expunge the Trump impeachments, you know, erase those from his record. I mean, do you see it as an effort to kind of rewrite history? You know, how else could you see it, right? I mean, this is nothing other than a cult at this point in time. We're no longer talking about the American system of government or politics or justice when we see this stuff going on. They're Congress. They can do whatever they want, right? Our former boss, Eric Holder, faced censure um, for something that, as as I recall it, was not something that rose to that level. And and it looked very much like he was being targeted because um, the House didn't have the ability to go um, after his buddy up the street who he played basketball with a couple times a week. Um, and and so they went after um, Eric Holder sort of as a, a marker for their discontent with what was going on in the White House. Here, I think we've now got a crew that has no shame, no sense of, of politics, no sense of service, and they will do whatever they can to try to whitewash the world for President Trump while at the same time, you know, taking this crazy step against Adam Schiff, whose service has been nothing but honorable and who history has proven to be correct, right? You will remember that Schiff said during his closing argument in impeachment, if you do not hold him accountable, he will do it again. Mm, Boy, truer words were never spoken. Um, Yeah, I I think it's so disturbing. You know, I I am a a proponent of a two-party system. I think a healthy Democratic and Republican Party are essential to good government. But what we have now is a Republican Party that has been hijacked. I mean, I know lots of good Republicans who care about good government and honor and integrity in government. They have, you know, different policy priorities than Democrats, and that's all okay. But this idea that we're going to rewrite history and manipulate public opinion uh, and say, you know, true is false and false is true— I think is really damaging to democracy. Now we're going to get to one of our favorite parts of the show, your questions. We love hearing from you. So if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. 
If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week because we try to answer your questions there whenever we can. And today we have some really good questions. The first one comes from Julie, and I'm going to ask him to answer this. Can a defendant in a criminal trial choose a bench trial? If so, would Trump be able to request one? So this is a great question from Julie, and I'm glad she asked it because I've actually gotten this question a lot in emails. I know we've gotten it a lot on Twitter, so a lot of listeners want to know it. Uh, So yes, a defendant can request a bench trial, but in federal court, uh, in order to allow that, both the judge and the prosecutor would have to agree. And in this case, I don't think there is any world in which Jack Smith would agree to that. So I highly doubt that that would happen. Our next question comes from Skoke Ellie, or Skokie Ellie, from my point of view, since I went to high school in Skokie. How are chief justices selected? And Barb, do you want to answer that one? Chief justices are, are selected by the president, uh, just like other uh, justices. The others are called associate justices. And so the president can either elevate somebody who's already on the court, one of the associate justices, to the chief justice position, or can select that person from outside the ranks of the court, just as um President George W. Bush most recently selected as Chief Justice John Roberts, um, and he picked him from outside. He was not already on the court. Uh, he selected him from outside the court to be the Chief Justice. So it's uh, it's up to the president. Thank you, Barb. And our final question comes from Ninja Cat underscore Cheryl. And of course, since it has the word cat in it, I have to go to Joyce on this question. <laughs> will Trump and Nauta's trials run pretty much in tandem or will they intentionally be kept very separate? Is there an advantage to trying one person before the other? Yeah, so this is a really great question. This is sort of basic criminal procedure, which Barb teaches, not me, um, but I'll take a stab at it. You know, sometimes defendants will move to have separate trials, especially if evidence is admissible against one of them, but not the other. But the usual rule is that co-defendants get tried together and I think that's exactly what will happen here. I guess there's there's a big sort of a bubble hanging over my head that says, if Walt Nauta remains a defendant and doesn't become a cooperator, but assuming he's a co-defendant, I think they will get tried together. There are conspiracy charges in this indictment, and that means that the evidence will be admissible against both defendants. I think it's unlikely that there's evidence that is only admissible against one of them. Um, And so for judicial economy reasons, and just because that's the normal course of business for the government to try co-defendants together, I think that's how this trial ends up working. What do you think, Professor McQuaid? Did I get it right? Superbly said, yes. (laughs) Thank you. I I think they will be tried together unless there becomes some sort of um, conflict between between the defenses, or as you said, sometimes there's evidence that's admissible about in, as to one, but not as to the other, like an admission, a confession by one, uh, that then you, you have Fifth and Sixth Amendment concerns come into conflict, uh, what's sometimes referred to as a Bruton problem. But to date, uh, you know, if we, it does not appear that we have that, but we'll, we'll see as it goes forward. 
Well, I'd say we certainly have confessions from Donald Trump made to Fox News. Every damn other night sources. on public TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for that's, sure. You know, that's true. That that could create a that could create a Bruton problem. I think maybe not at this point, but it is really interesting. I mean, aren't you guys happy you're not Donald Trump's defense lawyer? That's a happy thought going into this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and we need one, that's for sure. But thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. And please support this week's sponsors, Calm, Lomi, Honeylove, and Blueland. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them as they help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review because it really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag sistersinlaw. All right, now my Sharona's going to be in my head all day, but do you think any of our listeners will catch that reference? Do you guys remember that the SNL when they out, Janet Reno was always dancing. Dance Janet party. Reno's yeah, Janet dance party. Yeah. Yeah. Which was based on a real thing that she actually I did know, host a dance party. Yeah. <laughs> it was always my Sharona. Somehow that one has totally eluded me and I'm actually pretty oh happy God. about it. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. All right. Anyway, we'll see if anybody picks that up. <laughs> 